Hi, I'm John Niehaus, Director of Program Development for the National Association of Flight Instructors, welcoming you back to another episode of the NAFI More Right Rudder Podcast, the podcast for flight instructors on the go. And today I have a special guest, and this is a part of a three-part series, which we'll talk about momentarily. But uh, Dr. Keith Roxo, founder of Wingman Med, is joining us today. And uh, I'll do a little bit of an introduction for him first. And so he is a Top Gun trained adversary pilot. He's got over 2,000 hours in high performance aircraft, and that includes the F-18, the F-16, and the F-5. He is a military instructor. He's an ATP pilot. He's also a CFII. And he's an FAA HIMS AME, which we'll talk about a little bit later. Um, and again, he's founder of Wingman Med. And so what he has offered to do is come on and talk to us about sort of this enigma that is pilot health and pilot's health certification. So um, the three-part series that we're talking about is going to start with this. And it is all about primary care and primary care physicians for pilots. The second podcast episode is going to be sort of how the medical side of the FAA views pilots and, and what we do. And then the third, which will culminate in his Mentor Live presentation in January of 2024. You're probably even listening to this maybe pretty close to then. And uh, that's going to be sort of treating your medical as a check ride. So I think there's some really valuable information here, and hopefully you'll uh, stick around with us for all three parts. Keith, welcome. Thank you very much for having me. So, um, you know, we started this journey months ago through a mutual friend, and uh, you discussed that sort of this is becoming an issue industry-wide for, for pilots, and sort of the whole idea of getting a medical and maintaining a medical is becoming more and more difficult as, as we learn more about human physiology. Um, talk to me about how you came up with this and, and what Wingman Med does to, uh, to help pilots through this. So I started off as a pilot in the military before going to medical school, and then I went back in the military uh, as a as a physician, and I specialized in aerospace medicine and became effectively a professional flight surgeon. Well, in the military, as a flight surgeon, you are acting as the pilot's uh, primary care physician, taking care of them when they get sick or injured with the goal of getting them back to flight status as soon as possible. And that's quite a different perspective than the traditional AME in the civilian side. While, while many AMEs in the civilian side are primary care physicians, they're not necessarily your primary care physician. And in the role of the AME, they are an evaluator. They are not your treating physician. So they're not there to help you get through the process. They're there, uh, you know, kind of like, you know, we're going to talk about Mentor Live, like, they're an evaluator for the check ride, right? They're your designated pilot examiner for the medical exam, right? Because mm -hmm. it's a medical certificate every bit as much as it is a pilot certificate. Um, and that is a check ride. And if you do not pass, uh, you're not getting your medical that day. And, you know, and it could take a significant amount of time. So what happened was I ended up getting my FAA qualification because I had a lot of reservists in some of my units over the last, you know, several years of my time in the military. And it made sense since I was already doing their military flight physical, why not be able to do their FAA flight physical? And these guys kind of commented on how, because I knew so much about them and I knew all the FAA rules, I was able to help them easily get through any issues that they had. And it's really the same process in the military to get, you know, what's called a waiver in the Navy in particular, um, as it is in the FAA to get a special issuance. The paperwork is, you know, the processes are similar. The paperwork might be different in exactly what they want. But these guys noticed that, you know, I was doing a good job helping them out with their Navy flying career and their FAA flying career. And so word kind of spread around and I started getting guys from other units, sometimes from other bases. Next thing you know, some of my, you know, reservists who are airline pilots are asking me to help out a buddy of theirs who happens to be an airline pilot only. He's not in the military, not a reservist. And that was kind of the, the weird crossing point for me where I, I at first was like, well, I can't see him. He can't come into my clinic. So I can't take care of him to, to get him through his FAA medical. And my, my friend pointed out, he's like, well, you know what he needs to do. You just can't be the doctor doing it, but you can give him the advice that he needs to work with his own doctors. 
And that's kind of how the idea came out to work with people remotely. Uh, and then, you know, along with a, another friend of mine, Dan Monlux, who is, you know, my co-founder of Wingman Med, um, who went through all of F-18 training and, you know, basic most Navy flight training with me. And I did steal the idea of medical school from him, actually. Um, so he and I talked about it. And, and that's when we decided to start Wingman Med to be, you know, primarily a remote consultation service for pilots to help them get through the medical certification as quickly as possible. So how long have you guys been operating then? So Wingman Med's been operating for about two and a half years now. Cool. And, you know, it's interesting because I feel like, and, and this kind of stems from some of the things that you said in terms of primary care and, and uh, AME, but do you find that that creates almost a animosity between the pilots and the AMEs. They're just because you can't get too close for either side. Is that. So the potential is there right now. The big issue is that a lot of pilots are very afraid of the medical certification process. And if you think about it, the best you can do is break even. If you're qualified to fly when you walk into that exam, the best you can do is be qualified to fly when you walk out, right? I like that, yeah. But there's a potential downside that you might not be qualified to fly when you walk out. So there's always going to be some level of anxiety or angst or unknown, right? And, and that's kind of goes into that treat something like a check ride, right? You don't know if you're going to pass that private pilot check ride. You don't know if you're going to pass that multi-engine check ride, but you can prepare as best as possible, right? And minimize that level of anxiety because you put yourself through the grinder. You've worked with your CFI, you know, you've worked with other pilot mentors who, you know, quizzed you and things like that. Or maybe you got other buddies going through the program with you, especially if you're at one of the larger part 141 programs, you're going to have peers, mm -hmm. uh, you know, ideally, I would, I would hope you're going to quiz each other. <laughs> Um, so, so the goal is to prepare and, and that should be the thing that reduces the anxiety the most, but you have to know what to prepare for. Mm -hmm. And that's very hard. There's not a whole lot of guidance out there. And then medicine itself, it's, you know, these guys are studying aviation. They're not studying medicine. So even though there are guidelines put out by the FAA, the average person is going to have a difficult time reading and understanding those guidelines. Um, you know, when I was a pilot, I couldn't read and understand those guidelines because I didn't know anything about medicine. Um, but now that I do, I know that, and I used to have these same fears, right? When I was a pilot, it was, it was my thing too. Like you don't go to the doctor. Well, now what I know now is that you really don't have to be that afraid. You have to be actually quite broken or, you know, have a significant risk factor um, now, some people will disagree with the FA. They don't think they have a risk factor, but the FA will say, no, that that medication is a risk factor, whether you agree with it or not. Mm -hmm. um, you have to have a pretty significant risk factor to aviation safety to not get your medical. And that'll kind of, you know, some of that detail will come out in part two of how the FA looks at you. And, and just as a preview, they don't actually see you in person, right? The AME sees you in person, but the FA is only looking at the paperwork. And that's where that prep comes in. The, the level of detail needed in that paperwork is, is pretty significant depending on the, the condition you have. The more serious the condition you have, the more paperwork you're going to need and the more detail that paperwork is going to need to be. Excellent. Excellent. Well, I, I love the topic and uh, I, I think our listeners are going to get a lot out of these three conversations and so let's start at the beginning. Let's start with primary care physicians. Um, one of the things you mentioned to me previously was eh, they're not all as good as you'd hope they'd be. Um, let's talk a little bit about that. What does that mean for a pilot? So, and that's kind of like AMEs as well. Not all AMEs are created equal. Not all pilots are created equal, right? And when I talk to some folks, I'll ask them, hey, you know, is every pilot, you know, the greatest pilot in the world? And they say, uh, no. Like, well, not every doctor is the greatest doctor in the world either. Now, it's not always the doctor's fault. Sometimes they're an employee of a big hospital system or a big medical practice, and they have very rigid bureaucratic rules put on them. You get 15 minutes with a patient, end of story, no after hours work, you know, those kinds of things. That can put pilots in a tough spot. If you go in to help ask them to help you prepare for two or three complicated issues and you need very detailed written notes, they're not going to be able to do that in a single 20 minute appointment. 
They might not even be able to do it in two or three 20-minute appointments. And if that doctor has a patient panel forced on him by the practice of three or 4,000 patients, you're not getting in, but maybe once every two and a half, three months. Hmm. So that guy, he may not be a great doctor, but he may be a great doctor, but the circumstances make him not a great doctor for you. And so that is kind of where we came up with the idea of pilots ideally should be using what's called a direct primary care doctor. And pilots should have an established relationship with a doctor. Even if you're healthy and fine, have an established relationship with a doctor, because when something goes wrong, they're already going to know you. And it's going to be much easier for them to help you than if you're just going to them for the very first time. I know many pilots who uh, they just don't go to a doctor at all, except for the AME exam, because, well, I don't have any medical problems. Well, okay, that's fine. But when you do have a problem, now you're digging out of a hole instead of, you know, starting on a level playing field kind of thing. Direct primary care is different because those doctors don't take insurance. They carry much lower patient panels, but instead of you paying health insurance and health insurance paying the doctor, you are paying the doctor directly and hence the name direct primary care. So they typically have same day appointments available. They do longer appointments. If you give them a, a letter from the FAA that says, I need the following things, um, they're not necessarily going to argue with it. As long as it's within their capability to do, they're probably going to do it. Now, that doesn't mean they're going to lie for you, right? If they say, hey, we need this guy to do a, an exercise stress test, well, you still have to pass the exercise stress test. Um, but they are going to give you the time and the energy that you need compared to that guy with the three to 5,000 patient panel who only gets 20 minutes to see people and is not allowed to do you know, extra notes outside of the work hours. So a direct primary care is from a certification standpoint is the same as a traditional doctor that you would see any other place. It's purely about how they are compensated at that point. Right. It's a business model. So most direct primary care doctors are going to be board certified family medicine or board certified internal medicine doctors. That's going to be the majority of them. You might have some folks who were in a different specialty who decided to kind of switch over, but the vast majority are going to be family medicine or internal medicine doctors who are fully qualified physicians. They just choose to set their business model up in a different way that allows them to have more time with their patients and to better, they're kind of looking at it as, I would rather have a smaller patient panel that I can take better care of than a larger patient panel uh, that I'm you know, not doing as good of a job with. Well, I, I guess I'll say what everyone else is thinking. If I'm not using insurance and they've got a smaller patient base, am I going to have to you know, be Scrooge McDuck to, uh, to afford one of these guys or... Generally, no. They are going to range in price from $75 to $150 a month. And that's going to get you, you know, that same day access, maybe weekend access, uh, phone and text access. You get bit by some weird bug. You take a picture of it. You send it to them like, hey, do I need to be concerned about this? Nope, it doesn't look infected. You're going to be fine. Or, you know, things along those lines. That's the kind of access that you get. It's not concierge level, but it is, you know, pretty, pretty quick and easy access. And when you look at something like that, you think, wait, how much do I pay for my cell phone bill? Or how much do I pay for my cable bill? And you could also argue, well, I use my cell phone probably too much in a day, or I watch a lot of TV yeah. you know, or my, 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 you know, my internet bill, right? I use the internet all day. Um, and I don't necessarily use the doctor all the time, but the, you're kind of paying for that doctor like having insurance. You're paying to have that access when you need that access, not because you need to use them all of the time. So it's more of a subscription service kind of thing for, for a physician, I guess. Generally, yes. Some of them will take like walk-in charge by the hour, but for the most part, they operate on a monthly subscription model. Interesting. Yeah. I've never even heard of a, a physician that operates that way. How do you find uh, a direct primary care physician then? There's a website for direct primary care that is kind of like a locator. So folks who are involved in direct primary care, they can put their credentials and their practice in that in that database to, to be found via geographic search. We have an article, uh, we have at least one article, maybe two articles on our blog that talk about uh, direct primary care and how to find one. And hmm. The interesting thing is some of our clients who have had 
significant issues meeting the FA requirements. So, you know, we have helped them and we've laid it out. These are the items that need to be done. Okay. Well, my doctor says he's not going to do it. Or, well, my doctor says that the note meets the criteria. And we say that note does not meet that criteria. That's not even a note. That's called a letter. A letter is different than a note, right? Things like that. And these folks, sometimes we just say, look, you need to find a direct primary care doctor. And every single one who has gone to find a direct primary care doctor, they have gotten the note they need written in the detail that we request within a few days. Interesting. So, you know, one of my favorite things to talk about on these podcasts are sort of myths and legends, things people don't truly really understand, but but just adopt to be true because they're passed down. And And one of those things in regards to medical certification is that you know, one of the reasons why people don't necessarily go to doctors all the time is eh, you don't necessarily always want to know. I mean, I know that sounds counterproductive, like, okay, your health is important, but the more you go, the more you might possibly find something you don't want. And of course, I'm not advocating that people fly with medical problems that would make them unsafe. But at the same time, I sort of understand, like, do I really want to know if my eyesight has degraded? Like, let's see if we can pass the test. Like, how does that uh, perception come across from the AME side? So what you don't want to do is find out at the AME exam that you're no longer qualified, right? That is the wrong place to find out that your vision has faded to the point where you can no longer pass the exam. Yeah. Because now you're not walking out with your medical and maybe your job relies on it. Yeah. Sure, there are a lot of the part 121 guys have, you know, built in loss of medical coverage and their disability plans. But we have had many part 91 pilot, uh, you know, captains or first officers who, man, they get a couple weeks. If they don't get their medical, their job is over. And they, most of them do not have their own loss of medical insurance policy. And so that is not the time to figure that out. The other thing is, Again, going from the pilot side where I was scared of medical to now on the doctor side where I know what the rules are, mm -hmm. it's really not that hard. It's all about the right preparation. So if you show up, let's, let's take hypertension. So high blood pressure. If you show up at your AME exam and your blood pressure is out of spec, you are not getting your medical. It is not terribly hard to get your blood pressure under control with the right guidance from a physician, which is mostly diet and exercise and smoking and diabetes are kind of the big ticket items. But outside of that, there are medications that can help. So if, if you're optimizing everything that you can and you still need medication, well, the FAA will let you be on three different medications at the same time, as long as they aren't some of the scary old medications, right? If you're if your doctor is 95 years old and he's still giving you meds like it's 1982, then those are medications that it's not approved by the FAA. Sure. But if you're practicing modern medicine and using current you know, medical protocols, you can get your medical issued with high blood pressure as long as it is under control and your medications are the correct ones. But you need to know what that information is before you go into your exam, right? If you get an annual eye exam and you know that your vision is starting to fade or you you know that you're starting to move that menu a little bit further away as you get older and, and you might need reading glasses, the time to find out is not at the AME exam. Um, so really the time to find out is by you know preparing in advance. The other thing also is what if you do have a significant medical issue? It might not be caught at the AME. And you might be ignoring something because you're concerned about your medical when in reality, you should be concerned about your life and the medical should be secondary. And I, I get that pilots don't want to stop flying, but if you break your leg, you're not flying. So that's pretty obvious to most people. Wow. I fell off my roof cleaning my gutters and I broke my leg. I guess I'm not flying for a little while, but the thing that makes it harder for people to jump to is I have some invisible illness inside me and I'm unwilling to find out what it is. But if you pause, if right, you, instead of being forced to pause because you broke your leg, but you voluntarily pause, you go to the doctor, you find out what's wrong, you pause, you get treated, you get better, and then you return to flying. Mm -hmm. So, you know, don't let somebody else force the pause on you. Don't wait until you're so sick 
and ill and injured that it takes even longer to recover from. Many things can be recovered from fairly quickly the earlier you catch them. Yeah, you know, I, I think that's good advice. It's just an interesting sort of dichotomy between an individual wanting to be healthy but an individual wanting to keep their job. So it's it, right. it's that weird give and take that sounds so obvious for somebody who maybe isn't a pilot but doesn't understand the the stress that right. you know not wanting to know <laughs> might create uh you know losing your job if you did. So well, it's, and, that, and that's what kind of puts us in a unique perspective. You know, there are a lot of doctors who happen to be pilots and they you know they own their own airplane. Sure. There are not many aerospace medicine professional doctors who were professional pilots prior to going to medical school. So we get that level of fear. And that's why one of the services that we have is called the subscription service. And that is the opportunity to talk to us on a regular basis about concerns. And then it also includes, you know, annual help with preparing for your medical. Now, not everybody needs to pay us money, right? You know, if somebody has absolutely no health issues and no health concerns, don't pay, don't pay me any money. Right. Um, but when you get to the point where you start having questions and you start wondering how should I, should I change my answer on MedExpress so that this doesn't raise a concern? Well, that's the time that you should be talking to a professional, right? So that you can answer the question appropriately, but also be prepared for how you're going to handle it at the exam. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, and and I think that's an interesting segue because as we start to talk to our primary care physicians, you know, we may not know, maybe we haven't gotten to a point where an AME has given us a list of things that we need to have. Mm -hmm. How do we communicate effectively as pilots to our primary care physicians, you know, when maybe neither of us know what the AME is actually going to want. I mean, certainly if we talk to you, we'll get some of that information, but how does one even uh, sort of breach that subject with a, a doctor who may have absolutely no idea the, the demands of aviation. And that's a valid point. They might not know the demands of aviation. They may not understand that the FAA will prohibit certain medications for use when they're used to using those medications for, you know, the average non-aviator, um, and the pilot may not know those things. And that's kind of where that preparation comes in. Mm-hmm. And the FAA does have what's called the Guide for Aviation Medical Examiners. And it's available publicly on the FAA website. If you just Google FAA AME Guide, you'll find it. Again, that is a little bit um, of a long, dense medical document. You know, not quite textbooky, but kind of textbooky. And as a pilot, you can still read a decent amount of that and gather some good information. You can mention it to your, you know, your primary care doctor, especially if you kind of narrow it down to here are the pages that talk about this, you know, that you just diagnosed me with. Can you help make sure that what we're going to do, you know, meets the criteria? And those are things that can absolutely be done without, you know, even talking to wingman med. Um, the medication thing is always a, is a big question. The FAA does have a uh, do not issue, do not use medication list. That's not the same as a approved medication list. That doesn't mean that anything not on that list is approved. There are medications that are approved for some things, not approved for every, other things. A, a great example is Manjaro. Manjaro is a relatively new type 2 diabetes medication. It is approved for type 2 diabetes. It also happens to work really well for people without diabetes who are, want to use it for weight loss. It is not approved by the FAA for weight loss. So you can use it if you have diabetes, you can't use it for weight loss. So those are kinds of things that even the AME guide may not have that level of detailed information. And that is the kind of place where a pilot, you know, let's say you got some 50 or 60 year old pilot who's trying to lose a little bit of weight and his doctor's like, hey, Manjaro is the hot new drug and it works really well. It's even better than Ozempic. Neither one of them know that, but Ozempic is approved by the FAA and Manjaro is not. So those are, you know, those are kinds of things that are difficult to pull out of the FAA information uh, unless you kind of are an expert on it. And so, again, that's kind of one of the areas that we can we can do. Now, we also have our own medication lookup tool because we constantly update it. every time there's an update from the FAA. We update uh, every time there's an update from the FAA about medications 
we update our medication lookup tool. So that's something that people can use for free on our website as well. That's interesting. I, I had no idea that that a medication could be approved and not approved at the same time. Uh, yep. It's something yeah. that nobody really ever mentions when you uh, when you consider medications in general. So that's that's a good detail for people to know. And then there's the issue really comes down to what is the FDA approved the medication to be used for. And so if the FDA has not approved a medication to be used for something, then the FAA is unlikely to approve its use as well. Hmm. So that's kind of where it comes down. And we know Manjaro is kind of this, this new one because it's relatively new to be using these novel type two diabetes medications for weight loss. They were developed as these type two diabetes medications. The secondary effect was, wow, people are losing weight on these medications. But sometimes when a drug is used off-label in that scenario, they never seek formal FDA approval for it. Well, that's kind of a behind-the-scenes insurance compensation thing about whether or not they're going to do that. Well, some of these earlier drugs like Ozempic or Wagovi, they have received that approval. And so the new protocol from the FAA that just came out a few months ago about weight loss medications allowed for those because they are FDA approved. Mm-hmm. But the newest one, Manjaro, has not received that approval yet. So the FAA is like, nope. because And it's also because it's a, a newer medication. So the FAA wants a medication to be around and in general use for at least a year in its approved method only before they will even consider letting pilots use it. And then, you know, Never mind letting them use it for off-label things. So everything in aviation medicine is about risk mitigation. They're more like a um, they're more like the insurance underwriters than they hmm. are doctors. They are looking at what is your risk to aviation safety based on your medical conditions over the next fixed amount of time, depending on the certificate you're going for, because um, each certificate has a you know the different duration. Mm-hmm. So that's that's what they're looking at. They're looking at the aeromedical risk. So we'll talk to pilots all the time. Well, my cardiologist says I'm fine. My neurologist says I'm fine. And it's like, you are fine as a normal human being. Your risk to aviation as a pilot is way higher than a normal person. And that is why the FAA will not give you a medical or that is why they will not give you a medical until you answer their questions. You hear that, folks? Pilots are not normal. That's something I think we all knew. <laughs> you know, well, honestly, cognitive studies have shown that uh, pilots tend to score well above average on cognitive performance. Hey, I'll take that. I'll take that. <laughs> you know, and it's funny, and that brings me to kind of another one of those sort of myths and legends ideas. Um, you know, certainly if somebody is subscribed to a service such as yours, I think that's the easiest way to get this information. But one of the things out there is, is that you should never ask your AME medical questions like, Oh, Hey, I fainted the other day. What do you think it could be? Cause you know, everybody says, well, if you do that, then, you know, now you're telling your AME things that could void your medical. And they like, you hear that, well, you should always consult your primary care physician. Is that true? Is Should you really not ever, kind of like a check ride, never volunteer information that you aren't specifically asked? Or is there a benefit to having sort of that, that dialogue with your AME? I'm going to lump this in with another question we get sometimes, which is, should your AME also be your primary care doctor? Fair and enough. Then, and then I'll split them apart, right? So should your AME also be your primary care doctor? And my answer to that is, do they suck? <laughs> and, and if they suck, then the answer is no. They shouldn't be your AME or your primary care doctor. <laughs> but if they are really good, then absolutely. That's what I did in the military as a flight surgeon. I was the primary care doctor and the AME effectively, right, for right. the military. So that made it very easy for me. I knew the rules. I knew what the Navy wanted. You know, and for my reservists, when I was doing that, I knew what the FA wanted. I knew how to get it. I knew how to get the other doctors to write the kind of notes that I needed. And I was able to coordinate all that stuff. It's kind of funny when pilots leave the military, some of them have a lot of trouble at their first or second medical because 
they're so used to their military flight surgeons just doing all this stuff behind the scenes. And they're like, what do you mean I need to get all this stuff? Well, my, my flight doc used to do it for me. Well, yeah, your flight doc also had access to your entire medical record. This random AME out in whatever city you live in does not have all that information. He cannot piece all that together. You have to do it for them. So if they are good, I think that's a good thing. Then if you go to your AME, who happens to be your primary care doctor, and you say, hey, so I passed out the other day. He isn't going to immediately jump to, let's ground you. It's going to be, well, tell me what happened. Because there are certain types of passing out that are not disqualifying. Did you pass out while donating blood? Okay, well, how often do you donate blood from the cockpit of an aircraft? Fair. Pretty much never, right? So that is not a disqualifying episode of passing out. Is it a disclosing episode? Yes, you are technically required to disclose a loss of consciousness to the FAA at your next exam. So if you have a separate AME in primary care and you went to your primary care and he doesn't know anything about aviation and you talked to him about, oh, I passed out you know, while donating blood. Oh yeah, you're fine. Don't worry about it. And then you talk to your AME and all you do is on the MedExpress, have you ever lost consciousness? Yes. Um, and then you put in a note, it was three months ago. And you like, don't put a lot of detail in there. Well, your AME is going to be like, whoa, dude, what, what happened? Um, now, again, can you ask that AME who's not your primary care that question? Well, that depends. Does he suck or not? Right. Um, <laughs> is he going to give you that time? The other thing is most AMEs, you pay them for the exam. Yet, if you want to keep asking them other questions, but not compensate them, they're unlikely to give you a lot of their time. Hmm. And if you think about that, right, you pay cash for, you know, or maybe credit card for a AME exam. And outside of that time, you have not paid for their time. So many AMEs, not all, there are a lot of very good AMEs out there. There are some sketchy AMEs out there, but in general, you're calling up an AME hey, I would like your professional information. And oh, by the way, I don't plan on compensating you for this. Hmm. Well, you may not get, you know, the best answer. They're like, well, you passed out. You got to, yeah, you can't fly. You know, they may not be interested in hearing the whole story. Whereas your primary care physician is probably interested in hearing the whole story because they're going to turn around and bill your insurance, you know, unless you're on direct primary care and then you're just paying a monthly anyway. Um, so that's a very much it depends type of question. Yeah, it's, I know it, it, it comes up a lot because again, it, there's this sort of, as we mentioned before, an adversarial relationship a little bit, um, right. kind of like pilots and DPEs, you know, it's, mm -hmm. it's this, I, I want to trust you, but I also fear for all of the unknowns Right. and, you know, who do I talk to about this and what do I have to disclose? And it just becomes this sort of snowball of fear. Mm -hmm. Um, so, you know, I know that that's something that, that probably everybody listening at one point or another has encountered of like, oh man, I'm curious, but I'm also afraid to ask. Right. Absolutely. And th honestly, that is one of the reasons why we have a free consultation. We will, we offer a 15 minute free consultation for anyone. We also have a MedExpress simulator on our website. It's free to use. If you just want to play with the questions and see what they are, that's completely free. If you hmm. want to fill it out and have us review it and provide feedback, that is a $50 fee. But we will also set up, like I said, that free you know consultation. And again, hey, I passed out the other day. Like somebody you know sends us a message. I would like a free consult. I passed out the other day. Oh, crap. Okay, well, let's get this guy a free consult. Tell me what happened. I was donating blood. Okay, dude, not a big deal. Don't sweat it. This is how you should phrase it in your next MedExpress. Um, this is what you're going to, this is how you're going to describe it to your AME, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, and then you, boom, you're prepared for that check ride. Now, if it's, oh, I don't know what happened. I, you know, I was hit by a car and, and I passed out. Okay. Well, that's, that's a whole other level, right? Okay. Well now, okay. That means you had a significant head injury. Did you go to the hospital? Yes. I went to the hospital. Right. So these are two completely different ends of the spectrum. Um, that guy who passed out and went to the hospital is looking at a minimum six month wait before they can fly again. If they had any 
bleed in their brain, they're looking at a minimum one or two year wait. Mm -hmm. If they've had a seizure, if they have a seizure after that two year mark, they're looking at a 10 year wait, right? So there, there's such a dichotomy between, oh, dude, you're totally fine. And oh boy, we need a lot more information. Yeah. Um, but that's why we do the free consultation for folks, because we want to be able to give them, if we can solve that problem in 15 minutes, we have just completely crushed that level of anxiety. Exactly. Right? And you're talking to a guy who had that level of anxiety for 14 years before he went to medical school. <laughs> so, um, you know, so that's one of the the key things about talking to us, right? We, we're going to give you the, the honest answer though. We're going to give you the true, honest, official answer. We're not going to tell you to hide things. We're not going to tell you how to hide things. We're not going to tell you to avoid medical care. We are going to tell you what the rules say in the most efficient manner that a pilot is going to understand. Um, our goal is not to fight the FAA or hide things from the FAA. Our goal is to help people get through the process as efficiently as possible. And again, if we can solve that problem in 15 minutes or less, perfect. If not, well, that's what our paid services are for. Yeah. Well, and, and it's worth noting. I mean, we keep talking about sort of the adversarial relationship and things like that, but ultimately I think all of the parties involved in the process want the same thing. I mean, the FAA mm -hmm. wants us to be safe. The pilots, instructors, and, and, you know, aviators want to be safe. The medical examiners want you to be healthy and safe. Yep. Um, it's just a matter of sort of dealing with the system as it's set up, which, you know, sometimes it's good. Sometimes it's not so good, but sure. the intent um, from all sides is sort of the safety of the entire network as a whole. So I think it's worth reminding everyone that, you know, yeah, we get anxiety, um, but it's more about our internal fears versus a lot of the external fears. I mean, right. I, I think most examiners and, 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 uh, medical professionals want you to make the right decision, um, mm -hmm. and want to help you out and get you through that process as best they can, mm -hmm. which Eventually, I, I, that leads us to the next sort of idea here, and I don't want to step on our sort of podcast too, too much, um, but you mentioned that, uh, you know, once you get a direct care physician and you you start to go through this process of, you know, how do we get the paperwork, then it comes back to what does the FAA see? You know, what are they thinking when they see your paperwork? How do they view you as the pilot? Um, paperwork specific, what does that, what does that mean without touching too much on what we're going to talk about in the next podcast? Whenever there's something that needs to be sent to the FAA and okay, I'll, I'll back it up for a second. There are many things that the AME can issue you at your medical exam, even though you have a medical condition, provided you provide the right information. We'll go back to hypertension. Technically, if you have a history of hypertension, I have to know what your, if I'm your AME, let's say, I have to know what your treatment is. Do you have any side effects of your medication treatment? And what is your average, your minimum five day average, you know, blood pressure? And are you below the threshold? If you walk into the exam and you do not have that information, technically the AME can determine that. But in order for the AME to determine that, he's got to see you over a five day period. Now, again, are you paying for one exam or are you paying for five exams with the AME? Most of their business practice is not set up to give you time five days in a row to do that for you. So you kind of force their hand of, well, I'm going to defer you or you have to go get the paperwork from your primary care doctor that says you're okay. Now, if you show up to my office and you have uh, you know, something from your doctor that sufficiently explains it, then the criteria is kind of low. Like just give me the right information that I as a doctor can understand that, you know, you've considered this information and I'll accept it. As the conditions get more complex, there now starts to be a requirement that regardless of what is provided, the AME is not allowed to issue the medical and must submit the case to the FAA for final review. In that case, the FAA has very specific requirements on the paperwork. Um, it's typically called what's called a detailed clinical progress note. And so that is a formal documentation in medical speak of the complete history of what the medical condition is and a whole lot of other detail that, you know, we can go into more depth on the, on the next podcast. And the other thing is they want it to be current. That goes back to 
I am getting certified for the next six, 12, 24 or 60 months. Mm. They don't want to deal with information that's five years old. They want to deal with information that is no more than 90 days old. There are a few exceptions to that, but in general, you can't show up with a note from your doctor from three years ago and expect that that's going to carry weight today. Um, Cause they're looking at you for the next six months or 12 months. Uh, you know, if you're going for a first class, depending on how old you are, they don't care what happened three years ago. They want to know what's going on right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, have you changed medications in the last three years? Have you had, you know, worsening symptoms, improvement in your symptoms, right? Those kind of things. So as the conditions get more complicated, that documentation requirement gets more complicated as well. And what does it look like if, let's say, a couple of years ago, you went in for a medical, you were denied because of a health issue, and you said, well, you know, I, I just sort of fly for fun anyways. So forget it. I'm not going to worry about it right now. I've got bigger fish to fry. Mm-hmm. A couple of years later, you come back. Presumably, you've sort of figured out whatever that issue was and you go back to try to get a medical. Is there something you have to do in between because you were denied or can you start fresh when you're ready to go again? Uh, yes and yes. Okay. <laughs> so it's a little weird. If you have been denied in your previous medical at your next exam, no matter how good your documentation is or no matter how minor the issue is and the AME can issue your certificate as long as you have the right information, he will not be able to. The system will not let him. Interesting. uh, Or or her. So if your last one was denied, the system requires that the FA review your condition. And that's that's to catch some of the shady characters. And we all know that there are some shady characters out there. They're shady doctors, just like they're shady lawyers, just like they're shady pilots or shady versions of everybody. But that's to catch the shady people from not disclosing it this next time, right? So let's say you got denied for a history of seizures. And then four years later, you come back for a medical and it's like, do you have a history of seizures? No, right? Well, the AME is not able to issue you your certificate and it has to go to the FAA where they're going to look at your new exam and it's going to be flagged immediately. This was a pre- previously denied guy. And they're going to look at that one and they're going to look at the last one. I'm like, huh, well, he, he was denied for seizures last time. And this time he said he didn't have seizures, right? So that's going to, that's primarily what that is for. If you don't have a significant, if you've gotten better or it's not one of those like automatic disqualifying conditions, it still has to get pushed to the FAA. So you are going to need whatever information you didn't have before on that condition. And it is going to need to be up to date. A great example is like a heart attack. A heart attack is disqualifying. You can fly after a heart attack. However, you have to show that your heart is better and you have to show that your heart is better currently. So what we'll get sometimes is somebody has a heart attack, they obviously stop flying and then life gets in the way and they don't go back for a medical four years later. Well, now years later, they want to get their medical and they said, yep, I passed all my tests, you know, four months after my heart attack. Okay, great. We need you to do it again now. Um, And that's something that's a, a little hard for guys to get their, you know, to wrap their head around until we talk about the Hey, they're only looking at you for the next 24 months as a third class guy. They're not looking at you from the last four years. They're looking at you for the next, you know, two years. So they need that information updated now. So your exam will be deferred uh, to the FAA for further review if you've been previously denied, but you can apply. You just have to provide the right information. Interesting. Yeah. Because I think there's a fair amount of pilots out there that think that if they've been denied that, you know, it's over and yep. oh, go find something else to do. And, yep. and it's nice to know that there's light at the end of that tunnel that you can yeah. work to get it back. Now, there don't get me wrong. There are certain things uh, that most of the things that are hardcore denied, um, you know, CFR mandatory denial conditions, even a lot of those you can still get a medical from as long as you can provide the right stuff. But there are certain mental health conditions and there are certain neurological conditions that we know historically never get much better. And there's just, you know, hundreds of years of medical evidence that show this never gets better. And so the error medical risk is so high that 
it, it doesn't really matter. You're never going to get your medical. So things like bipolar disorder, um, you know, a seizure disorder that requires medication, you're never going to, you're never going to get your medical with those kinds of things. Yeah. And that, that comes back to the understanding as hard as it may be that your personal health is, is more important than maintaining a medical. If, if it comes down to something like that. And when it comes down to the risk, one of the things that I like to point out, you know, 9-11 showed us that aircraft can be weapons of mass destruction. Mm. And the German wings accident has shown us that if you allow somebody with symptomatic mental health, that's different from recovered mental health, but symptomatic mental health issues, you know, they can lead to disasters. And then John Travolta has shown us that if you have enough money, you can fly virtually anything on a third class medical. So we'll get people a lot of times that will say, well, all I want is a third class medical. What's the big deal? How much damage can I do? Well, you can do skyscraper damage is what you can do because the FAA does not restrict you in the size of the aircraft that you fly. So you could be John Travolta and take out a skyscraper if you have a sudden medical incapacitation in flight. And that's one of the big differences between basic med and third class. Basic med limits how big of an aircraft you fly. Even with that, how much fuel does a Cessna 172 carry? Carries a decent amount of aviation fuel. If you crash a car into a house, you might hurt someone inside the house if you physically impact them. But you are unlikely to set the whole house on fire and, and burn it down or the apartment complex. But if you fly a turboprop, a single engine turboprop, like a TBM or Pilatus or something like that, there's a lot of fuel on that airplane. And if you have an accident and crash into an apartment complex, a lot of people can die. A lot of people. Um, and so that's where that risk starts to increase. And that's why the third class medical still is harder than basic med, because there are no limits in what you can fly. Mm -hmm. Well, and I mean, even if we, we bring it down to a, a small aircraft and, and a cornfield because something happened, I mean, ultimately the AME and I mean, your family, your friends, I mean, nobody wants to see anything happen to you right. as the individual. So even if, even if it doesn't cause any other issues to anyone else, Part of the process is protecting the pilot as well as protecting everyone else around them. Sure. Um, and, uh, you know, the beautiful thing that I've come to learn over my years in aviation is that almost everybody that I've met in this industry has been, um, you know, a, a decent human being. And uh, um, I don't think anybody would want to see any of that happen. So it's we have to kind of take ourselves out of that process and just understand that, uh, you know, they want to protect us as much as they want to protect the safety of the industry and, and everyone around us. And it is hard when it's happening to you. Mm -hmm. Nobody likes to be told you're done flying. Nobody likes to be told that. Yeah. It's, it's, it's an odd profession because I think the only ones, and forgive me for those of you listening that this may, I may miss something, but uh, the, the most obvious career paths that have sort of the same identity crisis that pilots do, I'd say, would be lawyers and physicians, you know, because so much of what we do bleeds into our personal lives mm -hmm. that uh, it becomes kind of who we are. And when that goes away, all of a sudden you start to see, well, OK, who am I now? And and I think that that's part of the reason why we hold it so precious, because a lot of us haven't figured out, you know, beyond what we're currently doing, what happens then, you know, right. uh, and, and that just becomes a very big deal in sort of the, the pilot psyche. So, yep. um, well, I, I think that we've kind of covered the, uh, the ideas that we were hoping to, and certainly the next topic that we want to talk about as we move into the next podcast, if you want to give any kind of uh, um, sort of, trailers for for what is to come um but we want to talk more about what the faa looks at in terms of you know viewing the the pilot as a, a, a potential patient viewing the the documents they submit um viewing any kind of historical information that they have um you know what do you want to say as a lead into the next podcast yeah that's going to be all about the specific nature of what they want and they have very specific reasons for what they want and what they're looking for. And 
that's kind of where it comes in. Well, my doctor says I don't need this. Well, your doctor is not evaluating your aeromedical risk. They're evaluating your walking around risk, right? Those are completely different levels of risk. And that is why the FAA is very specific about what they want. And we'll talk about what the elements are of that detailed clinical progress note, how you can get one from your doctor. Uh, we'll touch back on this one about direct primary care, about how direct primary care makes it much easier to get that detailed clinical progress note. What do you do when you have a specialist that you need? Because most direct primary care are just that primary care. If you need a note from a specialist who's a cardiologist or a neurologist, how do you do that if your doctor is not helping you? Because again, the FAA doesn't care if your doctor wants to help you or not. They want the information or you are not flying. Well, and, and I'm actually excited about this because I actually have a special issuance and, um, you know, I have been sort of working on maintaining the paperwork that I need to go yearly for my uh, my flight physical. And so I, I can sort of share my experience in that regard as well. So I'm excited to uh, to bring you back for that. Keith, um, Wingman Med, if I was interested in learning more about the company and the services that you provide, where would be the best way to get that information and how would I get started? Uh, wingmanmed.com is our website and we have our blog on there where we have a lot of articles that cover a variety of different subjects and there's a pop-up uh, or there's a button right on the center of every screen that says free console. You can click on that and you can get the option to download some additional information or set up an appointment. Fantastic. And folks, if you are NAFI members listening to this, Keith has been kind enough and Wingman Med has been kind enough to offer a discount to NAFI members. Um, if you want to get more information about that, all you got to do is go to NAFI's website at nafinet.org and uh, sort of work that into uh, going and visiting Wingman Med. So Keith, thank you so much for joining us today. And everyone else, I hope you enjoyed it. Subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already, and uh, we'll see you next time.